Well, I'm definitely back. Uh, this morning when I arrived at the church, I booted up my computer to print my notes, and they were not on my computer. So I had to run back to the manse, run back here, and then I didn't print them, but they were on my computer. So during the first song, while you guys were all thinking, I don't really know this song, Ian's the only one who knows this song, I ran out of the sanctuary and printed my notes, and now here we are. So things are back to normal. Way back in 2009... I responded to God's call on my life to become a pastor. I'd been working at a bank in Seattle for four years, and I'd made many friends in our different offices. And I began to share with people that I would be leaving the bank to become a pastor. And I remember one conversation in particular. There was a woman who uh, worked in corporate upstairs, and, and uh, she was a believer as well. And I said, you know, so-and-so, I'm, I'm going to be, this day is my last day at the office. I'm headed down to Los Angeles to get my Master of Divinity and then go on to become a pastor. And she said to me something that I have never forgotten. She said, I wish I knew what God wanted me to do with my life. You ever feel like that? I wish I knew what God wanted me to do with my life. Man. Uh, I recall uh, the four spiritual laws published by Bill Bright, who uh, started Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. And the first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You ever heard that before? And when you hear that, do you kind of nod your head? Oh, yeah, God loves me. He has a wonderful plan for his life. But at the same time, do we not really know what that means? He's got a wonderful plan for my life. I hope he knows what that is, because I sure don't. I wish I knew what God wanted me to do. I think that this passage, it's interesting. Normally when I preach... Uh, through books of the Bible, like I do, I try and choose what we call whole units or natural units of Scripture. It's got a whole idea. This is not a whole unit of Scripture. It's just a little piece. But as I was reading, it really spoke to me. And I thought it's probably something that all of us are wrestling with. What does God want from me? What is his plan for my life? How do I know those things? What do I do once he tells me? Because sometimes God does say, here's my plan for your life. And you say, I have no idea how to even start. I have no idea how to take that first step. What do we do? How do we go about this? It's too big. You know, I'm going home. Just leave me alone. We have that Moses on the mountaintop experience, right, where God says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses gives excuse one, excuse two, and finally says, please just send somebody else. I don't want that plan for my life. What do we do? How do we know? How do we discern God's call on our lives? Well, we see here that God places a specific call on the lives of Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul. He had two names. A lot of Jews did in his day, Saul and Paul. And when they had, they'd just come back from Jerusalem, doing their everyday life sort of stuff, right? They were, they were working at the church in Antioch. They were teaching, and they were preaching, and they were discipling. And then the church raised money and sent it off to Jerusalem because there was a great famine in the land. And the church in Antioch, who, by the way, had sent Barnabas, yeah, the church in Jerusalem, who, by the way, had sent 
uh, Barnabas to Antioch, right? This leader of the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch said, well, we want to give something back. And they returned Barnabas and Saul went along with them to Jerusalem. They sent some money to help ease the famine there. And then Barnabas and Saul, we find out, come back and they bring with them John, also called Mark, who church tradition says wrote the gospel of Mark, recording Peter's uh, sermons about Jesus Christ. And when they get back, they start uh, fasting and praying and worshiping with the rest of the leadership of the church. So we see in verse 1, in the church at Antioch, there are prophets and teachers. There's Barnabas, who we know about. There's Simeon, called Niger, which basically means the black. He was almost certainly from North Africa. There was Lucius of Cyrene. There was Manaean, who of all things had been raised with Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of Galilee. Not, by the way, because it's super confusing. Not, by the way, the Herod the Great, who, or the Herod, King Herod, who had died in just our last passage three weeks ago, but a different Herod, because Herod the Great had lots of children, and they all got little pieces of the kingdom, and none of them were very good people. So you have this mishmash of people, and finally you have Saul. And while they are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them to. So they're just hanging out, worshiping God, and God speaks. It says, This is the call I have on the life of Paul and Barnabas. Does anyone wish God would speak to them that way? Tell them, This is the call I have on your life. Well, hold on a minute. I'm not sure that's what you want after all. Let's go all the way back into the Old Testament. Let's go to King David. Remember, before he was King David. David is the youngest son of Jesse. He's a nobody and a nothing, right? He's not anyone who's, who's destined for greatness as far as anyone can see as the youngest son. And he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And the prophet Samuel comes along and says, I want to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse's probably like, uh, you know, there is a king of Israel. What you're doing is treasonous. But somehow they work it out. All of David's older brothers go before Samuel, and Samuel says, it's none of them. And finally, uh, he says, aren't there any other sons? God sent me to find the new king from Jesse's sons. You're Jesse. And Jesse said, well, I got one more son. He's the youngest, and he's taking care of the sheep. That's all he's good for. So they call in David, and Samuel receives a message from the Lord. This is the one. And so Samuel anoints David to be king over Israel. Tell me, did David's life get easier or harder after that moment? Better or worse? Yeah, harder. Now, some of you are just tracking with the direction of the sermon. You're like, he clearly wants us to say harder. Others of you maybe know the story, and you're like, yeah, he's going to hide from King Saul for like the next 20 years. He's going to be running away, living in caves, and a hunted man. Did David's life get easier or harder when God revealed God's call on his life? Harder. You know what David's response was? I'm sure it doesn't say in Scripture exactly what ran through his mind, but it must have been something like this. Okay, I'm the next king, but there is a king already, and he has a healthy son. How is this going to work out? I'm sure that David saw the problems immediately. And you know the amazing thing? King Saul figured out, it didn't take a lot of 
intelligence to figure it out because David becomes a great warrior in Israel's armies and people start saying things like, Saul has slain his thousands of our enemies, but David is tens of thousands, which of course rubs Saul the wrong way. He gets jealous. He throws spears at David while he's playing the harp, you know, which you might do if you don't like the harp, but that's it for a different reason here. And David finally runs away. And Saul comes hunting him. And there are two instances where Saul had David cornered. And David, you know, is, he's hiding out. He's like, he's going to catch me any minute. And then Saul would, like, go into the cave where David was hiding to use the bathroom. And all of David's men, who are also fugitives with him, would say, kill him and take the crown. And what did David do? He said, no, I will not lift my hand against God's anointed king. It's not up to me to make God's future and purpose for my life happen. That's God's business. It's happened Twice, once in a cave where Saul was relieving himself, once when Saul was sleeping in the midst of a heavenly induced sleep over the whole army. And David, in both cases, confronts Saul afterward and says, Dude, I was in the cave. I could have killed you, but I am not your enemy. Another time, David's like, Saul, I got your stuff. Check it out. But I'm going to give it back because I am not your enemy. See, just because we know God's specific call on our life, God wants me to go here. God wants me to be that. God wants me to do this thing. doesn't make our lives clearer or simpler or easy. So let me ask you, what did David do? What did David do while he was waiting for God to, to bring about that call on his life, to, to do what he had promised to do? He did run. But what did he do while he was running? Yeah, he probably did lots of cool things like pray. He just obeyed. That's all he did. Do you notice what, what David did while he was on the run? He fought against Israel's enemies wherever he could. David realized God has made me a great warrior. He didn't commission me to that. He didn't say, David, you're going to be a great warrior. He said, David, you're going to be king. But I know that I am a great warrior as well. And I have the capacity to take the battle to Israel's enemies and protect God's people. That's the sort of thing a king would do. And David, even though he didn't have the title and even though he didn't have the office, he acted like Israel's king. Folks, that's something you and I can do. It doesn't matter if you think, I don't know what job God has called me to. I don't know what place God has called me to. I wish God would just show up and tell me where to go and what to do and who to be. He's already done it. He said, obey. Just do what's written in my word. What are the two great commandments? Are they figure out the special call God has on your life and then figure out the second special call God has on your life? They are love God and love your neighbor because if you do that, you will keep all of the law and commandments. That's God's call on all of our lives to obey, to be like Jesus wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Did you know that in the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Do you know, that? That's, I think that's a little bit of a misleading translation. I'm not just making this up, you know, with a couple years of Greek under my belt. There are lots of other people out there who think the same. See, I think I, I could share with you all the grammar. I'm going to skip that. If you want to know the grammar, you can ask me afterwards. I'd love to have that conversation with you. But I think a better translation is, while you are going, make disciples. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever job you have, whatever place that you live. You know, I, I get, I know a lot of folks in California are moving to Texas and Idaho and all those sorts of places. But I want you to know here right now this morning that it doesn't matter what state you live in. That has no impact whatsoever on your faithfulness to God in Jesus Christ. If ever, you know, if Christians and conservatives, not identical, so, but it often overlaps quite a bit. And if all those folks left California, who would be left to tell people about Jesus Christ? We have an amazing opportunity and mission in this place. The call of God is on us, wherever we are, to be obedient servants. That's it. Now, sometimes there is more, of course. Sometimes there is more. Sometimes God does have a special call on people. And I want to take you back to the text here for a moment. I want, you, I want to remind us all that actually Acts is not a standalone book. It belongs with the book of Luke. They're written as two volumes of the same work. And at the very beginning of the book of Luke, this is what it says. I'm going to remind you again. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Do you, do you pick up what he was saying? It's a lot of words. Let me summarize him. He's basically saying, we've heard a lot of stuff about Jesus. And we've heard him from people who actually knew Jesus, met him, walked with him, lived with him, received his teaching directly. And I've decided that I'm going to go and gather all that information together, and I'm going to put it in a book for you. Why? So that you will have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. Now, this is the purpose of the book of Acts as well. Luke is taking all the stuff that happened in, well, not all the stuff, right? It's only like a 28-chapter book. But he takes many of the things that happened in the early church, and he says, this is what you need to know so that you can be sure of what you've been taught in Jesus Christ. And when we come to this particular passage, Luke is telling us, you need to know that Paul, when he went out and he preached and he shared the gospel and he said that you Gentiles, because Theophilus is either a group of people or an individual who are almost certainly a Gentile, in either case, you Gentiles are included just the way Paul taught. And here's how you know. Okay, here is the story of how God called him and the church in Antioch. It wasn't just Paul coming up with this idea and going out and, and telling everyone. The church in Antioch sent him 
with their blessing, with the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. You Gentiles are wondering, do you belong or not? And I am telling you, you can be sure that you belong just as much as the Jews do to God's family. That message needs a little bit of contextualization for us, right? Because we usually don't think about, am I in even though I'm not a Jew? Right? We, we may feel pretty confident about that. So let me sort of reshape this a bit to, to take it up the ladder of abstraction, so to speak, and say, how does this apply for us in our lives? And it's, again, this idea of discerning God's call on our lives. How do we know if God has called us to something, to a ministry, to a great work, or even called us to himself? How do we know? How do we know? Well, Really what you do, and I'm almost literally preaching to the choir this morning since you're all in church, what you do is you live in the church. That's what you do. Have you ever been absolutely sure of something and then you went and talked to other people and they showed you in two seconds flat that you were wrong? You ever had that experience? I have that experience all the time. It drives me crazy. You know, I'm sure of this idea, especially like at the table, right? You're having a conversation. And uh, what was the one we had? We were talking about how tall Hugh Jackman is or something like that. Oh, he's really tall. He's like 6'6", right? He's super tall. And someone's like, he's not that tall. Like he's tall, but he's not that tall. And we're having this conversation, you know, we're going on and on and on. I'm just thinking he's six six. And then, but you know, being in community with people, you know what we did, of course. We pulled out our phones and then we Googled how tall is Hugh Jackman. And we found out he's not six six. He's he is tall, but he's substantially shorter than six six. So notice there are two things that happened there. First of all, there is a group of people who caused me to question what I took for granted as true. That's one of the big reasons we need community. Because we are so convinced so often that we are so right until we meet someone who disagrees. And then we have two options in front of us, of course. We can just say, I'm right no matter what, which is foolish. Or you can say, huh, let's ask the question. And that's part of what the church does for us. It says, let's ask the question. That's why we need people from all different backgrounds. Look at who's, who's at this church. There is Barnabas from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. There is Simeon, who's almost certainly an African. Lucius, who's from Cyrene, which I believe I looked this up and now I can't remember, is in Africa too. There is Manan, who grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, you know, the, the, the ruler of the land that they were in. He had all this crazy education that probably nobody else there did. And there is Saul, who is trained at the feet of Gamma one of the most famous Pharisees of the day. Do you think that they disagreed? Probably all the time about all sorts of things. But what they did, they disagreed in a holy, sanctified sort of way where instead of getting angry and shouting at each other like so many Thanksgivings devolve into, I'm never coming back here again, they, they worked together with the help of the Holy Spirit to figure out what was true and what was right. And then notice, it wasn't just the group of people. It was what they were doing together. What were they doing? Did you know in this passage, we're all going to be super disappointed today? I'm just telling you, I'm warning you right off the bat. I'm getting ready to cook a big meal for dinner tonight. I'm planning on having leftovers for weeks. And what does it say? They were worshiping and fasting. And then it said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. They got the call. They got the message from God. And then it says, they fasted again. Ah. That's like the worst news I'm going to hear today. 
Why were they fasting? They were fasting because fasting, like in its most basic sense, is a way of saying, look at me, God. Look at me. That's why Jesus said, when you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't go out and tell everyone, I am fasting. I can't eat anything today. So that they will congratulate you. You're getting the wrong people to look at you if you're fasting that way. You're getting other human beings to look at you. And wouldn't you rather that God was looking at you? Fasting is a way of saying, God, I am so crushed. I am so sad. I am so frustrated and hopeless. Look at me and help. Fasting is a way of of looking to God and saying, God, I am so confused. I don't know where to go. And did did you notice that in these situations, fasting is something you might just do naturally? What happens when people get deeply depressed? Well, they either eat more or they eat less, right? What happens when people are deeply troubled? They usually stop eating. When they're under a lot of stress, you eat less. It's this natural sort of response to our circumstances that in a way says to God, look at me. And if some of you are looking at the ice cream in your freezer right now and thinking, Pastor Ian, that's not the way it works for me. At least you wish it worked that way, didn't you? No, there's something, there is a connection there. Live in the church because together we have a greater wisdom than we have apart. Because when we actually do worshipful things together, when we fast, it's a way of saying, God, look at me. God, see us. When Daniel... In Daniel chapters 7 and 9, he got down on his knees to pray to God. At one point, he says, I noticed that the 70 years that God said our exile would be in effect was up. And so I started a fast, and then the angel came and spoke to me. It's a way of saying, God, we need your wisdom and your insight and your help. Do we live like that? Do we live like that? We have so much at our fingertips that can solve our problems, don't we? So much. And they're not bad things. You're not going to hear from me, don't go talk to a counselor. You're not going to hear from me, don't take medication. You're not going to hear from me, you know, don't take advantage of these, these secular resources that are available to you. Because that's part of God's common grace to us all. He gave us minds and hearts by which we could learn and encourage each other. Naturally, that's part of who we are, and we should do it. But maybe the question is, where do we go first? When we're troubled, who do we run to? When we're looking for insight and help, who do we ask? We ought to start with God. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so that's what they did. They placed their hands on them and prayed, and they sent them off. I like to say with the session, I don't know if you're aware of this, but since we are a Presbyterian church, we are an elder-run church. That means the session actually has final call uh, on the things that we do and, and you know, uh, is responsible for the decisions that are made in the church. And what I tell the session several times a year probably is I love this way of operating. For two reasons. Because I like to share credit and because I love to share blame. <laughs> That's mostly joking. <laughs> but the, the point is that there is a security 
that comes in a group that is not present when we are alone. We're not doing this all by ourselves. We're not crossing our fingers and hoping that we've got the right end of it. But we have a group of holy Christians surrounding us who said, that's what I heard from the Lord as well. Doesn't that sound better? I know we've got this John Wayne sort of cowboy mentality of go out, you know, and do it on your own. And you know what? There's a lot that's great and wonderful about that. But at the end of the day, it is better to do it together. We do it alone when we absolutely have to. We do it together as often as we can. Now, I know some of you out there, maybe all of us out there, are saying, but I've tried to do it together and it has gone so badly wrong. I don't have easy answers. It'd be nice if I could just say, well, those people weren't really Christians then. Or I'm glad that you're here because we'll never do that. Or something along those lines. But how many of you in here are followers of Jesus this morning? How many of you in here are still human beings? Yeah. Folks, we are being made like Jesus, but we're not there yet. Sometimes we get it wrong. In some ways, I feel like I'm copping out when I give that answer. Like, well, it's okay. I'm, please understand, I'm not saying it's okay when we get it wrong. But, you know, just stop your whining, get up, and keep going. I do hope, though, it gives us the opportunity to say, you know what, uh, I understand that that happens. And because I understand that we are human beings who do sometimes get it wrong, sometimes terribly wrong, I cling all the closer to Jesus who forgives my wrong and who forgives your wrong and somehow binds us together again. Because see, that's the hope. I think sometimes we try and do church like we're the ones doing all the work, right? If we don't have someone to light the candle on Sunday, you know, we'll have failed as as Christians. God needs us to be candle lighters. Well, you can tell how well we did with lighting the candle because now we got the electric candle. (laughs) I don't think it's on a timer yet, but that's probably coming. (laughs) Right? I mean... Remember when we were talking about uh, Peter and Cornelius a few weeks ago? And uh, God was wanting to establish that, yeah, the Gentiles, those people who aren't Jews, they are in. They can belong to Jesus Christ just as much as the very best Jew. And so Peter has this vision, and Cornelius' servants come and summon Peter over. And, and Peter is like, he's hesitant at every step of the way. And remember, God spoke to Cornelius. He said, go get Peter and bring him there. And then God spoke to Peter and said, Peter, go there. And then when Peter was finally preaching, after he'd been prodded like 16 times, all of, of Cornelius' household fell down and worshipped because the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Who was the least necessary character in that whole story? It was Peter. And yet God brought him along anyway, didn't he? 
See, that's what God wants to do with you and I. That's what God needs from us in church. Not to go out and fix the world and do it all perfectly and finally be the the redeemed humanity and look down at all those other slobs everywhere who can't get it right. But to show up, to see God work, to participate as he calls, and to glorify with the people who get to know Jesus. Because that's the picture at the end, isn't it? It's all of the redeemed people singing around God's throne. What if our life together as a church is preparing us for that? See, the result of that commissioned call is certainty, assurance, and encouragement that we'll never have if we do it on our own. So what do we need to do? How do we need to respond to this? Well, I mean, the bottom line is be vitally connected to your church. Be vitally connected to your church. You are here. You are my flock as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. He is the great shepherd. I'm just trying to not mess it up until he comes back and hopefully point us to him. We are the church in Lemon Cove. Be vitally connected. Not because then God will give you points, but because that's one of the most important ways to get in touch with the life that God has for you. The call that he has placed on your life. That strength to obey. And that wisdom to know where he's calling us. How do you do that? Well, would you just make friends here to start with? Just make friends here. And would you be intentional about that? So, Because there's two sides to this, right? There's the side of, I shouldn't just show up at church and expect that everyone will fawn over me. And it's like, oh, we're so, you know, let's just love you and everything will go at you, right? It's, there's a sense of, would you please try to connect? But then there's also the flip side of that, which is when you see people come in, would you connect with them? Right, give them a little bit of, oh, this is so, like, they just love me here. That would be great. Let's do that. Let's be like that. Make friendships at the church, but don't just make any friendships. Would you make spiritual friendships at the church? And maybe that sounds strange and foreign, but it's really not that difficult. It's just uncomfortable because we're not used to talking about our faith. Because it's supposed to be a private sort of thing in our culture, isn't it? Because we're more reserved. We are Presbyterians. We worship like this. You know, the Pentecostals are great at spiritual friendships because they're already worshiping like this. It's like they've seen me being crazy. They're ready. Like they, you know, I can share my life with them. But we are a little more guarded. And you know what? That's not the word. I'm not criticizing. That's the way I am. And I think there are wonderful things about that. But don't let it get in the way of making real spiritual friendships and saying, what is God doing in your life today? Where do you need his help? Can we pray together? Can I pray for you? Would you pray for me? You know all these things. They're just they're Sunday school answers, right? Bible, Jesus, prayer, and just do them together. Now, I can't make that easy, as in remove the whole barrier you know, of, of difficulty there. Because I know what happens. Like we go up to somebody and think, ah, oh, I could ask them to pray for me, but it feels really uncomfortable and I don't want to do it. I mean, the best I can do is say, how can I pray for you? Maybe that's 
The best all of us can do. I know we can all do that. How can I pray for you? But let me just say, if you're going to ask somebody, how can I pray for you, would you ask them to pray for you as well? See how the relationship becomes unequal? How can I pray for you, screwed up person? I got it all figured out. Let me pray for you. God listens to my prayers. How can I pray for you? Would you pray for me? God loves to hear prayers about you. Never runs out of patience. Never runs out of time. This last week, uh, actually two weeks ago, I was up in Washington State, and I was with two friends that I made uh, in junior high. And we hadn't seen each other uh, together probably in 10 or 15 years. Uh, but we sat down, and we're all, one of them, uh, you've met, actually, some of you have met, my friend Ian, who trains missionary pilots in Spokane. Another one, my friend Ben, who was a missionary kid, but where I, you know, my dad was the COO, and, and Ian's dad was the like, chief engineer at Boeing or something like that. You know, Ben's dad was the missionary. Now it's all reversed. Like, I'm the pastor, Ian's the missionary, and Ben is the business uh, mogul. So that's pretty cool. But we sat down, and we started talking to each other, and we just had permission to talk into each other's lives and say, man, this is really hard. I really screwed that up. I don't know how I'm going to go back home, you know, and deal with some of these things and praying for each other. And I learned so much. And I came back ready to be more like Jesus. Build friendships. Contact leadership. You don't have to do this on your own. Don't, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you're saying, I'm trying to read my Bible and I don't know how, first of all, on the back table, there are already a bunch of Bible reading plans that can help you get started. But if you want someone to do that with, I will do it with you, or an elder may do it with you, or we will connect you to somebody. Because you know what? It's good to study the Bible together. Join a small group. The whole purpose of the small groups is to do Christian life together. If you're not in one of our small groups, you better be in a spiritual relationship with somebody somewhere. Because there's no replacement for it. There are no John Waynes Speaking metaphorically, I don't know if John Wayne's there or not, but there are no John Waynes in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself sought fellowship. So do it. And then serve. And serve with your friends and your partners and your buddies and your fellow church members. You know the best way to find out God's specific call in your life? Just start serving somewhere. One of my, my professor of field education in seminary uh, said that right out of seminary, his first call was as a youth pastor. And he spent two years there. And he said, you know what I learned after two years? I'm not a youth pastor. And he said, and that was good to know. It helped me get to the next place God was calling me. Just go. Just serve. And finally, and coming back to really the deepest truth, don't neglect obedience. Do what Jesus said. Don't do what he said not to do. And if you find patterns of sin in your life, confess them. Bring them to the church in a way that is relatively safe and appropriate. I would tell you shouting them out on Sunday mornings, probably not the best way to go. Not, I hope this is a safe enough place to do that. But I think it's probably better to start with one of those spiritual friends. Say, I am struggling with this, and I need to obey. Don't neglect obedience.
Because see, that's what God calls us to in the first place, just to follow Jesus.